We're back in Hebrews 7 this morning. And we won't finish chapter 7 this morning, but most likely next week. I'm not going to read the whole passage at at this moment. We'll read different verses throughout the sermon. But let me read Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Lord, what a beautiful verse. What a gospel verse, Lord. We pray now as we continue to worship you, that you would draw near to us. Speak to us, Lord, through your word. May your spirit convict and challenge and confirm us into the image of Christ, Lord. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Ankle butter. Ankle butter. Ankle butter. I've been singing that in the car going down the freeway with my family. Ankle butter. Have you ever sung ankle butter? I've been singing that probably for about a month. Ankle butter. And for some reason, it got stuck in my head when my kids were, Dad, what on earth are you singing? I'm singing the ankle butter song. Ankle butter. Ankle butter. Of course, they laughed and like, you know, like, oh my. (laughs) Dad, it's not ankle butter. It's ain't nobody better. It's a Christian song about Jesus. But I was singing ankle butter <laughs> throughout the whole house. Ankle butter. And they said, Dad, it's, there ain't nobody better than Jesus. So I thought, well, maybe they could have been a, li- a little bit more clear <laughs> in how they pronounced the words. There ain't nobody better than Jesus. Sometimes we can be unclear in our perception of Jesus. Sometimes, perhaps, we may miscommunicate him. And so so people can get the wrong idea, or even we can get the wrong idea about Christ. The book of Hebrews basically is saying there ain't nobody better than Jesus. Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is better than the Old Testament priests. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than than Abraham. He's better than the human high priest. He's better even than the Sabbath. There's nobody better than Jesus. The book of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is wonderful. So don't walk away from him. Jesus is wonderful. So don't walk away from him. Don't throw in the towel of your faith. Rather, take hold of Christ by faith. That's the message that we see, especially here in Hebrews chapter 7. And we've said that in order to understand this chapter better, as it fits into this overarching theme of there ain't nobody better than Jesus, so don't toss in the towel of your faith, but rather take hold of Christ better today than yesterday. In order to understand how chapter 7 communicates this, we're looking at the emphasis of the text, the explanation of the text, and then the exhortations that flow from the text. We've seen the emphasis of the text. We started last week also the explanation of the text. And we looked at several of them. This is the right sermon. And so we're going to continue on. Next week we'll look at the exhortations of the text and even one more point on the explanation. But this morning we're going to resume where we left. Last week we said underneath the explanation of the text, we said Jesus Christ is king. He's not just your priest. He's superior to the Abrahamic covenant. And then this morning, number three, we're going to say this. Christ's priestly ministry is eternal. Christ's priestly ministry is 
eternal. That is eternally stable. He ministers to you and for you without end. He's not going to move away. He's not going to pass on. He is your chief minister forever and forever. Therefore, don't give up. Don't give in to Satan, to sin, to the world. Keep pressing forward, taking hold of Christ. And this is developed here in this chapter, not necessarily sequentially, but throughout this chapter and even throughout the whole book. But we'll look at how this develops in three different ways. That is, again, there ain't nobody better than Jesus, so don't drift away from him, but stay fixed on him. That's even what Hebrews 12 says, right? In Hebrews 12, it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Verse 3, consider him. Keep focused on him. He's the greatest there is. He's the bestest there is. Focus on him. He is your chief minister forever. And this is developed first in verse 3. Look at what verse 3 says. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, in context, this is talking about Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem. Previously, it's been said that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. Because these Hebrew believers, again, they were under pressure by their religious friends and their religious community that your life since you came to Jesus, hasn't gotten easier, it's gotten harder, so you have to probably go back and make the type of sacrifices that we're making in the Second Temple Judaistic religion. You have to come back to your family roots and go to your high priest, lay your hands on this animal, confess your sins, and get right with God. Give up that Jesus is the Messiah. Was Jesus a Levite? Then why are you going to him to confess your sins? Only Levites are true priests. And so the Spirit of God is teaching these beloved believers that it wasn't always the case that only a Levite could be a priest. There was a Melchizedek that was a great priest outside of a uh, the whole Abrahamic family, and even before Abraham was there, and he was a witness of God, he was chosen of God, and he was even a king and a priest. And so verse 3 is getting even deeper into this, and it's comparing Melchizedek to Christ. And even when it says, but made like the Son of God, it's the type of Greek that's used of a model. In fact, one lexicon says to cause a model to to pass off into an image or shape like it, to to resemble it, when it says made like the Son of God. And, and the providence of God, Melchizedek made, I'm sorry, God made Melchizedek as a model of what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or in, incarnated would be. And part of that is what it says here at the beginning of verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. Now, in the Greek text, when it says without father, without mother, without genealogy, each of these phrases is one term that begins with the Greek letter A, which means not or or no. No father, no mother, no genealogy. And it would have stood out to the readers. It would have been very rhythmic. It's being emphasized that Melchizedek didn't have a father, didn't have a mother. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> Is he divine? No, the, the last phrase explains the first two, I'm looking at verse 3, without genealogy. Remember that for the Jewish community, you can look at the book of Numbers and even First and Second Chronicles. They were very concerned about who were they related to. Who were? You can even look at Matthew 1. Is it Luke 3? You know, you can look at all the different family lines and tribes and detail it back all the way to Abraham. They were very concerned about that. But from Melchizedek, it says that he didn't have a genealogy. And 
he didn't have a mother or father in the sense that when you look at Genesis 14, there's not Melchizedek, son of, who was a 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 son of. Remember when we went through Genesis, sometimes, and even Joshua, there could be all these lists. But for Melchizedek, there's nothing. It's just, poof, he's there. And that was to be, as it says in verse 3, a model of Christ painting the picture that one day, Micah 5.2, there would be, the Messiah would be born, in Isaiah 9.6, born in Bethlehem to a virgin. Melchizedek was human, but he was a model of Christ who was to come. And then if you keep looking at verse 3, it says, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. What does it mean, end of life? Was Melchizedek like Elijah? Well, no, that, that's not the idea. It's the idea, again, if you, for example, look at Genesis 5. Genesis 5, over and over again, says what? And he died, 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 and this person died, and he died, and, and he died. Everybody in the, in the Bible dies, except for Enoch and Elijah. Even the Messiah died. What does this mean then when it says no end of life? Well, it's the idea, again, that if you go back to Genesis 14 and read about Melchizedek, there's no record of his death, of his departing. There is of, of Abraham. There is of Noah. There is of all the patriarchs. But there's not of Melchizedek. Why? Because he was to be this model of the Son of God, of God the Son, of the Messiah. And so in that sense, because there's not a narrative that says he was born to this person and he died in this place and he died this way, in a sense then, there is this model that is presented that his priesthood, him being a priest and a king and being outside the line of Levi, it continues forever. That's what verse 3 is saying. And that's why verse 8 at the end says, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. Talking about Melchizedek. And this is to be a model that Christ's high priestly ministry, representing all those who trust in him, would last forever and forever. Now there's a second development that we see in verses 15 to 17. And again, we're talking about this third explanation of the text, that Jesus Christ's priestly ministry, him being your minister, continues on forever. Verse 15, and this is clearer still, verse 14 says that he was descended from Judah, not from the tribe of of Levi or even from Aaron. It is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, that means outside of the line of Levi, even being a king, who has become such not on the basis of law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is the great high priest, not because he's from the right people group or from the right tribe. But rather, he is the great high priest, it says, not because he meets physical requirements. The word physical is the Greek word sarkos, means uh, fleshly. Flesh doesn't always mean something bad. It just means physically he's not descended from the kosher-appointed tribe of Levi. But he's able to be the high priest because of his power, the power of an indestructible life. When Christ died, remember, he gave his life away. It was his power to lay his life down and to take it up again. It wasn't that sin and death and evil overcame him. He willingly sacrificed his life. And in in his resurrection, he defeated Satan, death, and hell, and sin. So we, we must not think that Christ simply was overcome by evil. No, he overcame evil by his own death and resurrection. But this... Verse, and even this phrase, but according to the power of an indestructible life, is beautiful and it's amazing. This life which is not able to decay. 
this life which is not able to be destroyed, this life which is not able to fade away or, or to be conquered. It's indestructible. And this word power, you've seen it many times. It's the Greek word for dunatai, ability. It's the idea of power of ability. There is this ability that Jesus has because of the very power of his life. We talk about John 10.10, Christ came that you might have life, an abundant life. That's the zoe life. That's the, the, the word here. The word life here is zoe life. Jesus, because he is himself power. Power comes from God. Power doesn't exist outside of God. If there was no God, there'd be no power. There'd be no ability. He has power himself. Because of that, that gives him the ability to never be corrupted in terms of natural decay. He willingly took on a finite flesh but remember, in Matthew 17, there were times when he draws that back and what did the disciples see? Uh, you know, blazing glory, Shekinah glory and light. Because Jesus himself is power. But it's also here, verse 16, when it talks about the power of an indestructible life, it's talking about not just his nature, but his work. His work is powerful. Jesus gives us his life. He says, even in verse 25, he lives to make intercession for them. So now, Jesus and his resurrection life, does Jesus ever stop working for you? Does he need to sleep? Here became power, sin, death, and judgment. He doesn't need to sleep. He doesn't decay. Uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks in a year, 365 days. He's powerfully working for you. And because of that, and because he himself is power, you know, Genesis says of God, there is nothing that is too difficult for him. Because of this very nature of God, that nothing is too difficult for him. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Because of that, he's able to be your great high priest. You can say your chief minister, your number one pastor is not some celebrity pastor. It's Jesus Christ. He is your great chief shepherd. And in the context of this, the Spirit of God is instructing these beloved Christians. Remember, he says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, we're convinced that you are saved. We really are persuaded that you know Christ, but you're being heavily tempted to run away from Christ. Don't run away from Christ. Run to Christ. Where else are you going to find such a person, such a man, such a minister, such a servant, such a priest, such a shepherd? Only in him. He's the only one that has this indestructible life of power. He overcame death. Why would you toss in the towel over Christ and give up your faith when he is life and power himself? Don't go back to Aaron. Don't go back to the Levites. Don't go back to a dead religion. Hang on to Jesus. Hold fast. And then in verse 17, he says, since you're so fond of talking about Levi and Aaron and the Old Testament. The Old Testament itself says in Psalm 110 that the Messiah, the son of David, would be a priest like Melchizedek, a king and a priest outside of the family of Levi. So even the Bible has authority saying that outside of this certain tribe, there can be a priest. Melchizedek modeled the Messiah the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the king, the prophet, the priest, that's Jesus Christ. And he died on the cross and rose again for all those who trust him. And he brings you life. Now there's a third development that arises out of this text. 
talking about that he is Jesus, your priestly minister, your your chief shepherd forever. That means he's stable. Our economy might be stable. Churches can be unstable. They can waffle. People can waffle. People can come and go. Jesus, his ministry to you is forever. The third development we see in the text makes this very clear. Look at verse 24. And there is this, you might remember it, menday in the Greek. On one hand this, but on the other hand that. Verse 23 is saying, on the one hand, the former priest, they weren't evil. God, God invented the, the, the priesthood. But they, they had to be in great numbers, both in terms of in the immediate present of that time, but also they had to keep going on and on and on because they would die. The, the priesthood had to hand off to a successor because otherwise, because they were sinners, they would die and they weren't resurrected again. On the other hand, contrasting that is Jesus. But Jesus, on the other hand, contrasting that, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. The very nature of God the Son is that he can never die. He can never be decayed. God the Son took on humanity, took on finiteness, and willingly gave up his life, separated from God. And his body died, that human body, but now he has a glorified body, and he continues forever. And so his priesthood it continues on in a permanent fashion. There is no other minister or priest or pastor that we can say this about. G. Campbell Morgan, he died. Who succeeded him? Martin Lloyd Jones. Who succeeded Martin Lloyd Jones? Does anybody know? I have no idea. <laughs> Spurgeon. Who After Spurgeon died, who succeeded Spurgeon? Who is his successor? His son? Maybe, I know. It's, you know, it'd be, it kind of fades away, you know. We know after Thomas Watson, Jonathan Edwards, who was the successor? He got kicked out of his church. Jonathan Edwards got kicked out of his church. Even today, uh, R.C. Sproul had a small church, and he passed away. He's with the Lord in glory. Who's the pastor of that church now? I don't know. Who's going to be the pastor of Grace Community Church after John passes? Don't know. Men and pastors come and go, but there's a chief pastor, a chief shepherd, and his priesthood, his ministry, is permanent. It continues on directly for you. And so the Spirit of God is saying to these beloved Christians and to us, don't be a fanatic of your local, for them, local priest. To us, don't be a fanatic of local pastor or a celebrity pastor. Have a biblical fanaticism about Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Hebrews is saying. That's why, again, it says in chapter 12, fix your eyes on Jesus. I don't think it ever says in the Bible, fix your eyes on anybody besides, in terms of a person besides Jesus. We need to hear that. These believers needed to hear that. And so, again, he's telling us and he's telling these beloved people, don't walk away from Christ. People and men organizations will let you down and fade away into eternity, but not Jesus. He ministers forever and forever. Now, there is a fourth explanation of this text, and it's very similar to what we just said. It's very similar to what we just said, except now the text, the Spirit of God says, and God promises that it will be so. 
Jesus Christ has divinely promised to be your forever minister. Not only will Jesus be your forever minister, God makes an oath and he promises that Jesus will be, I say this with utmost uh, seek to respect and, and holiness to God and the word. Jesus is your personal pastor. And I say that in a biblical sense. And we'll talk about that later because we see this in verse 25. He lives to make intercession for them. He is your chief minister, your chief shepherd. Right? All pastors, all ministers, we are under shepherds, under Christ. But the Lord promises that he will be your minister, your chief priest forever. But it's promised and an oath by God. That is God the Father. Look at verses 20 and 21. And as much as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Quoting Psalm 110. So much more also, Jesus became the guarantee of a better covenant. And we'll consider details of a better covenant much more next week. Right now, just focusing on 20 through 22. There again is this contrast. You can see this in 20 and 21. And also in verse 22, but especially 20 and 21, the contrast here is that with the Old Testament priests, there was never a time when God said to those priests, you, son of Levi, of Levi, of Levi, forever, your ministry will endure you yourself, your personal ministry as a priest, I promise that you will minister forever to the people of Israel. That promise was never made. That oath was was never given. It says in verse 21, for indeed they became priests without an oath. It was by family lineage. I'm a Levite, so I'm a priest. <laughs> but for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it was the plan of the triune God, <clears throat> voiced by the Father, saying that I promise, I, I swear, you will be my priest to my people, and this will be your mission forever. But he, with an oath through the one who said to him, Yahweh has sworn, and he won't change his mind, you are a priest forever. That means that forever and forever, God has promised the most loving, the most caring, the most righteous, the most wise, the most gracious, the most powerful minister ever is going to minister for and to you forever. And God promises that it's going to be this way. That's a powerful promise. And this in context is why it says that it is a better covenant. There's more reasons why it's a guarantee of a better covenant, but God the Father has promised in God the Son that this minister, this priest, who is also a prophet and a king, is going to do this forever and forever for you. And we'll talk about next week that his life is undefiled and pure and holy and godly. And there has never, ever been a minister as righteous and devoted and as godly as Jesus Christ. And so that's why I fix our eyes on him. But also, it's a better covenant because God himself has promised. Again, and we mentioned this, I think, last week. We used to say, right, when we were young, make a promise, cross my heart, stick a needle in my eye, hope to die if I don't keep that promise. But here in Hebrews, we see that God makes a promise in chapter 6, but he makes this promise by himself. He swears to himself. See that in chapter 6 and 7. Perhaps you've seen the movie Trolls. I don't know if you've ever seen that cartoon. They give what kind of a promise? Do you know? I know some of you might know. Don't tell me you don't know. I see some smiles. They give what kind of promise? 
If you really want to promise somebody something, what do you do? You give them a pinky promise. And so the, both people grab their pinkies like this, and then they spin around, and it's all these dazzling lights. And it's like, super powerful. If you didn't know that, pinky promise is supposed to be super powerful. Okay? Throughout the ages, you can even see this in the book of Genesis, right? They used to split an animal in half and walk through it. If you think pinky promise, that's kind of kooky. They used to split an animal in half and walk through it. <laughs> Let that happen to me if I don't keep my promise. So throughout history, there's always kind of different ways to verify your oath or your promise. It's important. Well, God, the Messiah, wants wants us and his people to know how important it is that he's going to be your and my chief number one main minister that seeks to minister to you and to me. He wants us to understand that, that he says, I promise and I make an oath to myself that I will do this. Is God ever not going to keep his promise or his His oath? It's, it's really like this double powerful oath. It's very emphatic. That's why it says he would not change his mind forever. I think it's very important. And I'm not trying to slight anyone. And who knows what the Lord will do with, with me. What I mean, and I, I've shared this before. When I was, maybe you're getting tired of it, but when I was in India years and years ago, there was a man there, and he was from a company, I think, in Sweden, but he was Australian, and he was teaching on God's will, and he said, Tom, do you believe that God wants you in, in India? I said, I don't know. He said, really, you don't know if God wants you in India? I said, I don't know. So... He said, can I see your Bible? So I gave him my Bible. And he wrote something in it, and he handed it back to me. And I had said, I don't know if God wants me in India because it's not in the Bible. So he wrote in the front part of my Bible, and I looked at it, and it said, Tom, God wants you in India. And then he said, there you go. It's written in the Bible. And I said, you probably should have added to God's word. <laughs> I wouldn't have done that. And it was funny. We laughed about it. And then about two months later or so, I was in the U.S. And so I would share that story with everybody, and about three years later, I was back in India. Whoa. And then I would share that story with everybody, and then, you know, eight years, nine years later, I was back in the U.S. (laughs) So what I'm saying is that you can have a, a pastor or a minister that has no desire necessarily to leave, but God in his providence can do what? Boom, 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 boom. At the same time, I have met ministers in person that have told me, Tom, I want to work my way up to right beside this one pastor. I'm going to do whatever I can do to get to the top. I've heard that more than once. And he did. He did. And then he went someplace else. And then came back. And then went someplace else. What this text is saying is that there is a priest, there is a a, a pastor, there is a minister, there is a servant of God, there is a shepherd that doesn't seek to have ambition and move on from his pastorate. And his name is Jesus Christ. The mission that he has, he will stay in. He finished the atonement part of it, but now he seeks to always being to apply that to those that are his forever. I'm not saying it's wrong in God's will if God wants a man to move on. What I'm saying is that Jesus Christ is better than all of us. And this text is saying that he's not going to die. He died and rose again. But he's focused on this mission for you. And he's not, Father, can I do something else? These people, man, they're so bad. This is crazy. Can I? Jesus is focused on his mission resolutely for you. And this is a promise from God. There's a, another 
explanation of the text. That was number four. This is number five. Number five. Jesus Christ is your best prayer warrior ever. Verse 25. It says in verse 25, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ is your best prayer warrior ever. I am not your best prayer warrior ever. I wish I was, but I fail. First Samuel twelve twenty three. Samuel says, Moreover, far be it from me that I should cease that I should sin against God by ceasing to pray for you. That's a powerfully convicting verse. But Jesus Christ is the perfect example of that verse. He never will cease or stop praying for you, interceding for you ever. We've seen forever, forever, forever. And then here it says, he always lives to be interceding for them. Now, there's not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. We want people to pray for us. But sometimes we'll find somebody that we know is who we believe to be a very powerful prayer warrior, or maybe some pastor, maybe somebody important, and somebody that we know, and we'll say, please pray, pray for me, pray for me. I seek to pray for you, but that person and I will not be perfect in our prayers, ever. I seek to be, but I'm far from that. However, this verse is saying there is someone, there is a wonderful, amazing, superior, supreme, sufficient person that is always faithful to intercede for you, and that's Jesus Christ. Don't run from him. Don't drift away from him. Don't throw in the towel, but rather in faith, take hold of him. Now, let's break this down in several ways. First, this verse, verse 25, is saying he is really able to save you. He's really able to save you. You can see it there. Therefore, he is able also to save. This word able We're seeing this term a lot in this chapter, dunatai. He is able, he has the ability, he has this power to save you. But in context, note in verse 25, it begins with the word therefore. That is because Jesus Christ is the great high priest, because he is your chief shepherd forever, because God promises that he is yours and you are his forever and forever, because that is true, he is able to save you. He has the power to deliver you from wrath and sin and hell. He delivers you from damnation to glory. Remember Hebrews 2, 9 and 10 says he's going to take you to glory. You're saved from sin, but saved to glory. This is what this Salvation means he is able to save forever those who draw near. He has the ability to save. You may be here this morning and say, I can't be saved. There's no way I can be saved. I have a friend that says, redemption may not be possible for me. I may have to go to hell and fight it out in hell. Well, This verse is saying that he is able to save. God can save through Christ anyone he wants to. That's why scripture says, call in the name of the Lord and be saved. Plead for salvation, mercy from God. We're drowning in our sin. And only Christ is the one that can rescue us. He is able to save. Remember again, going back to Matthew 19 with the rich young ruler. And he walks away from Christ and the disciple, and Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to be saved than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Do you know of anyone that can't be saved? God can save anybody because of that righteous life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so for these believers that are here, 
and context, they could have been tempted to, for me to be sure I'm doubly saved, then I should go and make this sacrifice. Perhaps you're saved today out of Roman Catholic Church. There could be a temptation. I have to go and have communion. I have to go to Mass to be saved. No, Jesus saves. Mass doesn't save. Only Christ saves. But further, looking at this verse, he is able to totally save you. Look at verse 25. He's able to save, you see it says forever. Maybe you have an italicized letter, a number by forever, and your margin it says completely. Forever is not the best translation. It's, I think, from play Roma or play race, which means fully, completely, uh, totally. He's able to save you. Heart, mind, body, inward and even outward. He's able to save you fully and completely and wholly. Physically, spiritually, mentally, he will complete you. Listen to what it says in 1 Thessalonians, a beautiful verse that brings this out in chapter 5. I think so well. Verse 23. Chapter 5, verse 23 of 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse is seen, Hebrews 7.25, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, that God is able to complete the work that he started. If you are saved, can you lose your salvation? No, salvation means you're saved. If you're saved, that means you're rescued from God's wrath and even from your own sinfulness. Why? Because God has made the promise, and because his very nature is, he will completely finish this work that he started. He is committed to that. It's not the priests, it's not the ministers, it's not the shepherds, it's not an organization, it's Jesus Christ. It's God the Father through Jesus Christ that's able to do this. That's why we said last week, it's not a spouse that makes you complete. It's not your kids that make you makes you complete. It's not your job that makes you complete. It's not your education that makes you complete. It's not a, a church that makes you complete. It's not some kind of ministry organization. It's not some kind of hobby that makes you complete. Only Jesus Christ. Now, it goes further. Third, and we're talking about that Jesus Christ is your is truly your best prayer warrior ever. Why is that? Because he's able to save you. He's able to totally save you. There is also, third, this reminder that this is all through, through Christ. This is Christ-centered. Look back at verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Through him. This phrase, draw near to God, we've seen it throughout Scripture, already in Hebrews. It's the idea of prayerfully relating to God. It's not the idea of just saying words on your lips, but really seeking to know God through worship. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, he talks about no confidence in the flesh, but we glory in Christ. That's what this is saying or in John 17 where Christ is praying and he says, and this is eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ and his son. Here when it says to those who draw near to God through him, it is the explicit idea of John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no man may come unto me except through, through him. There is this Christ dynamic that we should have in our life. That how I have any boldness with God is only through Christ. It's only His righteousness that's been applied to my life by grace through faith alone 
that I can have any amount of boldness with God. I stand before God, not on my own two feet, but in Christ, based upon His work. I believe in Jesus and all that He did. There is no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved. Acts 4.12 And so this is used here to help us, but these Hebrew believers to understand. It's not going over and over and over and over to this Old Testament Hebrew priest. You could go 2,000 times to this Hebrew priest, and it's not going to save you. The only person that can save you is Jesus Christ. So why would you drift away, run away, fall away, throw in the tower of faith from Christianity and from Christ? Why would you ever do that? Nobody and nothing else can ever save you. If you were in the Mojave Desert, have you ever been to the desert? Like way out there in the desert? If you're way out there in the desert, maybe maybe you got lost out in the desert and you happen to come by just this crystal clear spring water. Would you look at that spring water and just go, nah, yeah, to do... To get that water, I might have to get on my knees. I'm not going to do that. And you you just bypass that crystal clear spring water. You know, I can probably make it another 200 miles in the desert. I'm going to try. Would that be wise? That would be one of the dumbest mistakes you could ever make in your life. Much more so with Christ. He is the only one that can save your soul. So to leave him is dumb and dangerous. And sooner or later, if it hasn't happened, it will happen. There will be a temptation in your mind and in your heart where Satan and your flesh will say, is Christ really worth it? Is Christianity really true? Why don't I test the world and taste it for a while? But once you do that, you've placed yourself in a dangerous position. Instead, take hold of Christ and feast in all that he is for you. Because, fourthly, underneath where we're saying Jesus Christ is your best prayer warrior ever, fourthly, look at what it says. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So number four, underneath Jesus Christ is your best prayer warrior ever. Number four, he gives his life for you. Christ gave his life for you and the atonement, but he continues to give his life for you. His atonement, Christ dying on the cross, was once and for all for you. He never has to die again. But the benefits of the atonement, he continues to minister to you throughout the rest of your life and throughout what? Eternity. It says here, he's always living. He's always living to do this for you. And and it's emphatic here. Always living. Have you ever heard the phrase, you know, I... I live for you. This text is saying that there is a sense in which the Son of God, his very heartbeat, since he always, 24-7, there's no time in heaven, but all the time, is thinking of, motivated to, bent on, ministering for you before the Father. That's what verse 25 is saying. And even here at the end, on when it says, for them, that is an atonement phrase. On their behalf, in their place. He's not talking about that he has to die over and over again. No, his death was once and for all. But the benefit of that is being worked out and he's personally ministering to us before God in some mysterious, marvelous way for forever, always living to make intercession for them on their behalf. 
What does this look like? What does this mean? Well, it could be, maybe we see this in Zechariah, where Jesus Christ says to Satan, No, these believers are mine. They have my perfect righteousness. Perhaps we can see glimpses of that in the book of Job, that they're justified. Certainly means that Christ gives us strength, grace, wisdom, love. Whatever you need, he still works for you. You can read John 17. Go home tonight, today, read John 17. Perhaps Jesus is still praying John 17 for you and seeking to work that out in your life. The atonement is done, but his ministry to you is not done. He said he to the disciples that he'll be with you forever. Well, if Christ is with you, it's not just that he's here and not doing anything. Is Christ not doing anything for you? He's just, hi, Tom, good luck. Is that what Jesus is doing? Jesus is still ministering and working, giving strength and grace and wisdom and might through his spirit to us. And in some way, pleading our case before the Father, and Zachariah seems even to countering Satan. So we look at this passage and we can ask, has anybody loved you like this? Does anybody minister to you perfectly like this? No. Only Christ. So run to him. Don't run away from him. Satan will launch a blitzkrieg of temptation and difficult times in order to get you to deny Christ or drift away from him. But rather fight that with how wonderful Christ is. Fight that with the truth from Hebrews 7 that we see. That there ain't nobody better than Jesus. And it's clear. I, I was unclear. <laughs> but this text is clear. There ain't nobody better than Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. May the truth that there's nobody better than Jesus stay in our heart and mind and soul forever. And may we trust you and walk with you, never run from you, but always run to you. We give you the praise and we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.